Hi, I'm Harrison. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're talking about Sleeping Beauty. At this point in history, the Walt Disney Company has a lot of the movie-making process under its belt. With the 1950s films that we've discussed so far, storytelling is finessed and the style becomes more consistent. Even though some might argue it strays away from Chris Pallant's definition of Disney formalism animation, which strives to replicate the real, both physically and emotionally, to a hyper-realistic extent, the animation style we see in these films still does not replicate the cartoony, Western, American style that other studios popularized. If these elements do appear, they're used sparingly, but intentionally, whether to establish a motif, a theme, or sometimes a joke. Think uh, the bubbles in Cinderella's Sing Sweet Nightingale, the style of Wonderland juxtaposed to the formalist English countryside in Alice in Wonderland, and the crocodile's eyes in Peter Pan. But with 1959's Sleeping Beauty, we see a complete divergence from this style that Disney animators worked a decade to refine. Both my Disney and my non-Disney sources say Walt wanted Sleeping Beauty to have a unique style that stood out against the previous Animation Studios films. He decided to make an adaptation of the Charles Perrault fairy tale of the same name around the time the company released Cinderella. He seemed to have solidified it as a project in 1950 and began writing in 1951. Many scholars say Disney saw Cinderella's success and wanted to try and recreate it. After all, it worked twice before, why wouldn't it work again? Well, he ran into some problems. While effective, the fairy tales he was drawing from were also redundant. Likeable fair maiden faces some threat, makes innocent friendships with likable creatures, and a prince comes and saves the day. Uh, Not to mention the Peralt fairy tale is only like four to five paragraphs long, so the company had to add a lot of detail and scenes in order to flesh it out into a feature-length film. But Walt and his writers found that a lot of what they came up with was either copied from Snow White and Cinderella or were rejected ideas from their productions. Early drafts of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had a heavy emphasis on the prince and his intelligent horse, which is basically every scene with Prince Philip and his horse. So in order to make it different from the previous princess films, Walt wanted it to be visually unique, to look unlike anything the studio released before. Walt usually turned to Mary Blair for artistic inspiration for the films. As I've mentioned, her art influenced the style of many films, from Saludos Amigos to Peter Pan. However, she left the Walt Disney Company in 1953 because she felt like animators dialed down her concept art so it wasn't to her standard. Animators say they changed her style because they felt there was a disconnect between her backgrounds and the characters they animated. But Mary didn't like that approach, and that's why she left. Well, apparently, Walt was equally frustrated with her departure, so he set out to find someone who had a bold vision like Mary, with the intention of keeping the final film as true to the design and the concept art as possible. Kay Nielsen, who did the concept sketches for The Night on Bald Mountain in the 1940s film Fantasia, made the first styling sketches for Sleeping Beauty in 1952. He used pastels, and the sketches were nice, but not entirely adaptable to finished backgrounds. Enter Ivan Earl the self-professed Mary Blair Stan and assistant background painter for Peter Pan. He was known throughout the studio for doing more experimental art in short films, so Walt ended up giving him the job as the lead storyboard art director. Walt was the one who approached Ivan about the medieval Gothic style of the film. The Gothic style dates back to Persian art, which also had detailed backgrounds. Animation historians say Ivan decided to draw upon this 
and add his own modern 20th century flair. John Hench showed Walt the famous unicorn tapestries from the Medieval Art and Cloisters collection at the Met in New York, which gave Walt the idea of making the movie a living tapestry. Medieval art come to life on screen. Like the tapestry, the style of the film included crisp edges and a linear perspective. There's also a lot of straight lines, strong verticals, and angles, as opposed to curves. And there's a lot of detail in this artwork, sometimes an overwhelming amount. In fact, the overwhelming detail in this style ended up being a point of contention between Ivid and the animators. So similar to how they treated Mary Blair's concept art, the animators wanted to tone down Ivid's drawings so that they could create characters in the way they knew how. Uh, if you think about previous Disney characters, especially in the 1950s, they have rounded, warm features. Really, we only see an angular style like this in Wonderland. Sometimes. And in the Melody Time short, Trees. Trees! <laughs> We stand trees. Additionally, animators felt Ivid's backgrounds were too busy and that their characters got lost in the detail. But Ivid did not want what happened to Mary Blair to happen to him. So if an animator asked him to alter his work, he would argue with them. Apparently, the animators complained to Walt, but Walt always took Ivid's side, both because he wanted the film to have a distinct look, but also because, as I've mentioned a lot during these latest films, Walt's attentions were not focused on his animation department. He didn't really care enough to entertain the argument. Sleeping Beauty is one of SC's favorite Disney films. He's going to pop up a lot throughout this episode to comment on different topics, but I'm introducing him during the history section because during the interview, he had a little more information about Ivan Earl and his art style. Like some people don't know, it's another reason why the art direction in Maleficent I found to be such so insulting uh, was because of all the colors and all the character in Sleeping Beauty. Ivan Earl was a painter who basically did, I think he did almost all the backgrounds in Sleeping Beauty by hand himself. Um, you know, he was a painter who got polio as a child and paralyzed half of his face. And it killed his brother, but he lived. And his dad would never let him go out and play with other kids. His dad was like, no, you have you just paint. You stay inside and you paint. And that was his whole childhood, his, his whole youth. And so, yeah, look up Ivan Earl. All of his paintings are so melancholy. So there's so much... Um, beauty, yet uh, just this this sadness about everything he paints, and you can see it in all the backgrounds. And just the, the the way that the like the dimensions of the backgrounds in that the animators were so um, frustrated with the way that he would paint sometimes because they're like, yeah, like creating making our characters walk and do things across these backgrounds is so intense that they had to like figure out like new styles. It took like a decade to make. It's the very meaning of like love of craft. topic of Walt's disinterest in the animation department. Animation historian Michael Barrier says Sleeping Beauty, quote, suffered the most from Disney's preoccupation with other projects, end quote. Sleeping Beauty was going to be released in 1955, but Walt's attentions were more focused on the Disneyland television show and amusement park, so it got pushed back to 1957, then 1958, and then 1959. For the studios, this was not typical for an animated film to take this long to produce, and typically at this point, the project would be shelved. And yet it wasn't. 
My guess is that Walt wasn't invested enough in the project by this time to really care if it was finished or not. In fact, during Sleeping Beauty's production, Frank Thomas, one of the lead animators, said, quote, Walt was not supporting us, and you couldn't figure out what he didn't like, why he said the things he did. And we didn't feel it was personal condemnation. It was more that there was something in the way he saw the picture that he couldn't get over to us, end quote. He goes on to say that Walt couldn't convey what he wanted because he didn't know what he wanted to begin with. And he didn't know what he wanted because he wasn't interested enough to think about it for enough time. Now, going back a couple years, when it came to the initial drafting of Sleeping Beauty, Walt was a little more hands-on, but just a little. As I mentioned before, writers were drafting the story in 1951. By 1953, Wilfred Jackson animated a pilot sequence, but Disney threw it out, not liking the story. Wilfred worked with Ted Sears and two other writers for months on a new version, which Disney was lukewarm on, but he approved it, but only after basically rewriting the entire thing. I do want to mention one other thing about the story process that I thought was interesting. The company purposefully decided to not drag out the already sparse source material with gag sequences and songs like they did with Snow White and a bit with Cinderella. Walt explicitly wanted to move away from having a movie with subplots. So there was a concerted effort on sticking within the reality of the story and omitting the silly symphony nonsense that Harrison hated so much in the earlier films. So if creative differences and a disinterested boss weren't enough stacking the film against its favor, there were some other issues with production that made the film especially difficult to finish. Notably, this was the first 1950s animation studio film not directed by Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Lusk, and Wilfred Jackson. Instead, Walt gave Clyde the sole directorial power. Or at least that was the case until 1953 when Clyde had a heart attack. Now, he didn't die, but Walt replaced him with one of the Nidal men, Eric Larson. Larson and Ivan Earl did not see eye to eye on the artistic direction of the film at all. And Larson, being an animator, oftentimes would fight back against what he wanted. He didn't end up lasting long as director. In fact, he only directed the forest scene where Aurora sings Once Upon a Dream and meets Prince Philip for the first time. That scene took two years to rework, based on Walt's edits and other story issues they were working on in order to get the romance just right. Larson ended up racking up the budget, causing Walt to stress out. So Walt took him off the project, and at that point, Clyde was feeling better, so he, you know, was slapped back on as director again. So the feud between Ivan and the animators did not last forever. Ivan left Disney in 1958, so before the film came out. As a result, his style is ultimately softened, and animators took detail out when making the final film. But they obviously didn't reject the style altogether. Aurora, her parents, and Philip all have a more medieval style to them, emphasis on angular and vertical. However, you'll notice the three good fairies are the three rounded, warm characters and are the most reminiscent of earlier characters in earlier films. The goal in doing this was to make them more likable visually. Now, I want to mention just a couple of things that don't really fit into a narrative per se, but I think they're important enough to say. The studio continued to do live action referencing when it came to animating characters, and the animators seemed to like it better than they did about a decade earlier when they were working on Cinderella. Mark Davis, one of the nine old men, has gone on the record to say, quote, why make that stuff up when you can see it, end quote. But more actors did not do their own acting for references, like during Alice in Wonderland. This included opera singer Mary Costa, who did the singing and speaking voices for Aurora. She notably had to drop her southern accent when she spoke in the film. 
Ben Shirley played Prince Philip. Apparently, everyone had a crush on him because he was nice, handsome, and can sing, which, like, what else could you want, yeah, I suppose? Right. <laughs> um, Disney veteran Eleanor Audley, who voiced Lady Tremaine in Cinderella, came back to voice Maleficent and notably did her own live-action sequences. Apparently, animators based the character off Audley so closely that other people could recognize her in the character. If you're an animation buff, here's a fun fact. Don Bluth and Floyd Norman started their animation careers working on this film, and the Chuck Jones worked on it as well for, like, four months. And for those of you who don't know and don't feel ashamed if you don't, because I didn't until I did research, Chuck Jones is known for his work on Looney Tunes. In the mid-1950s, Warner Brothers shut down its animation department to put more resources toward its 3D films. So Jones lost a job and worked at Disney. However, 3D films flopped terribly, so Warner Brothers brought back the department, and Jones went, went as well. So there you go. Now on to the music. Jack Lawrence and Sammy Fain were supposed to write songs for the film, but they were dropped in favor of George Burns's score. He ended up adapting Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet. The only Lawrence and Fain song that made it to the final film was Once Upon a Dream. And I have to say, I listened to some of the demos of the abandoned songs, and I really don't think they would have worked all that well, just given the style of everything. I've also been watching this movie since birth, so that could also be my bias, but I'm just putting it out there. The animation studios mostly used cell animation for Sleeping Beauty, so basically they took paper drawings, cleaned them up so they just had the most basic lines, put it on a cell or a transparent piece of plastic, and painted it on both sides. The cell was then placed on one of Ivan Earl's elaborate backgrounds and photographed. However, we also see the Walt Disney Company's first foray into Xerox animation in this film. It's a style that would come to define their work in the 1960s, and I'll explain more about that process in our next episode, but for now, just know that the Thorn Forest was all animated using Xerox. While we're talking about some of the technical history bits surrounding Sleeping Beauty, I also want to note that the film was the first 70mm widescreen animated film. This basically was an alternate to Cinemascope, which we talked about in Lady and the Tramp. Animators had to work on really large sheets of paper for this new style, and that became a bit of an issue because, like, every single scene that they animated was basically this elaborate tapestry. The only downside with 70mm is it cost a lot of money and was one of the many things that jacked up Sleeping Beauty's cost. Yeah, but it looks incredible. <laughs> It really does. Okay. In January of 1959, the Walt Disney Company released Sleeping Beauty using its own distribution arm, Buena Vista Pictures, which the company created after splitting with RKO, as I have mentioned previously. The company paired it with the documentary film Grand Canyon, which went on to win an Academy Award. All in all, the film took eight years to make and cost the studio $6 million, making it the animation studio's most expensive feature. It didn't do terribly at the box office. Upon its initial release, it made $5.3 million, but because the film cost so much to make, the company ended up losing money and therefore saw it as a failure. This is also the first time the company did not see a sharp increase in profits since, well, before Cinderella's release. Audiences and critics had a mixed reaction to the film. Bosley Crowther, this critic from the New York Times who seemed to have opinions on every Disney film at the time, said Sleeping Beauty was charming with good colors and music, but it was too similar to Snow White. He even goes on to say that the film looks similar visually, which I totally disagree with, but that's beside the point. Speaking of the style, Time hated it. 
calling it a compromise between sentimental crayon book childishness and commercial cubism that tries to be daring but really just looks square. Commercial cubism. (laughs) I did not think that was a thing. (laughs) Apparently Sleeping Beauty is it. Time. (laughs) What the hell? Um... All in all, people did think the style was odd, but there was plenty of critics who thought the movie was charming. And it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Score and a Grammy Award for Best Soundtrack, but lost both awards to Porgy and Bess. Throughout Sleeping Beauty's production, Walt was vocal about his stress and disdain surrounding the cost of animation, specifically the financial cost. As I've mentioned before, production delays and artistic aspirations jacked up the price of the film, and Sleeping Beauty's failure showed Walt that investing in animation was truly not worth it anymore. So he decided to scale back the animation department. He reduced staff sharply, dismissing studio veterans who worked 20 to 30 years with the company, and this sort of solidifies his relationship with the animation studios moving forward. It's crazy. We've seen him pull back more and more for the better part of 18 years, and it all just kind of culminates to this. Uh, The Nine Old Men end up gaining more cultural popularity at this time, and they sit on the board of the animation department, basically running it. At this point, they greenlight projects not Walt. However, in the next decade, they all end up moving to different departments like television or the amusement park, but they still remain the authorities on animation. But Sleeping Beauty was not banished to devil to television. But Sleeping Beauty was not banished to de- banished to television land. Why is it so hard? I have no idea. <laughs> but Sleeping Beauty was not banished to de- ban my brain's just like it's not it's not gonna happen okay banished (laughs) but it was not banished to television land right away the company released it on 35 millimeter film and made 3.8 million in rentals sleeping beauty was released again in 1978 in 70 millimeter and made millions by 1986 it had grossed 15 million dollars and today it is the second highest grossing film in 1959 Right behind Ben-Hur. Thank you. I'll wrap it up now. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to end on this thought. We've talked a lot about Disney formalism in this podcast, a term Chris Pallant coins to describe the Walt Disney Company's animation style, a style that encompasses the artistically ambitious and aims to capture realism, both visually and emotionally. While Michael Barrier does not use the term Disney formalism, he notes that there are, quote, lapses in judgment, end quote on part of the animators, that cause things to happen in the film that are clearly unrealistic, thus shattering this illusion that the animators are trying to capture real life, but in a cartoon. The moment he picks out is when Philip picks up his father as if he weighs nothing, even though he clearly weighs a bit. Barrier says the style of Sleeping Beauty also does not have emotional content. Quote, they never reflect or reinforce the emotions the characters are supposed to be feeling, end quote which is quite the opposite of what the studios tried to accomplish back in the day. Harrison told me over text that he had to pause the... It took him 15 minutes to watch the first four minutes of the movie because he had so many notes. Yep. So that opening just really did it for you then. Uh, listen. Yeah, this movie's great. Um... Because I was, like, it was all of my first impressions of everything. Because, like, that all hits in the first, like, four minutes of the movie. So, of course, I'm going to keep pausing it and, like, really considering what's on screen. Because, like, yeah, the aesthetics of this movie are 
so striking. Just it it's incredible. This movie looks amazing, even down to like the act like the intro credits, like right? the font work, the background design. Just oh my goodness, and yeah. the fact that like oh god oh it's so good it's so good it's so pretty. It's so pretty. I love the detail of it. I love how intricate it is. I remember, so, because this is another one that I've been watching since I was a young, 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 young Alex. And the opening, like, they say in musical theater that, like, you have to really capture your audience's attention in that opening number. Because if you don't capture them in that first bit, like, you just lose them. And this has always worked for me as an opening number. I think that there's enough action going on everywhere the detail is so 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 intricate and everything is just reeks of this medieval style right up even to the music and the way that they're singing and the lyrics and the words that they're saying it's just and like you always have something to watch and there's almost like a musicality to the way that you know the 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 soldiers like bounce across the screen in their horses and the way that like you know these people in this renaissance attire just walk into the castle and you just get you get such a sense of the world that you're in right yeah absolutely and the fa- like it, it- <sighs> It's hard to not call this movie, like, a flex, especially considering, like, all the history we just talked about and the fact that there was constant fighting between Ivan Earl and the animators about, like, no, we really don't want to do this. This is too much work. Mm-hmm. But, like, the mul- the multiple planes of animation in this procession, I'm like, excuse me, this is the most staggeringly impressive display of animation we've seen since Snow White, honestly. Like Even as much Pinocchio? as I, yeah, and no, I. Yeah, I know probably you like Pin- Pinocchio yeah. better. Like I like Pin- yeah, I like Pinocchio better, and the leap it ta- from Snow White to Pinocchio is greater. Yeah, but no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess you're right. From mm-hmm. since Pinocchio, um, and that's including Fantasia, which like is an aesthetic and artistic masterpiece, but in terms of the technical aspects of it. I think Pinocchio still blows it out of the water. Mm. Um, this is just... This is Disney at the height of its power. Just absolute pinnacle of their anim- like of this era of animation. It's d- staggering. And just the way... The, the lines... The way every... Like, the way every moving character and person in this feels distinct and different enough from each other but also of the same world i wrote down i took my note wrote my notes that like it's specifically the soldiers that caught my attention for this Mm -hmm. yeah because their their lines are so sharp and straight and like except for like and even like the the helmet which is still rounded that edge feels mean and angry in a way that nothing else in in this movie, save for Maleficent, which we'll talk about her in a minute, um, it, it just the knights feel like a part of this world, obviously because like everything else kind of matches it, but they feel distinct enough that they are like their own class of 
being you know mm-hmm. like they like their design is different enough from the nobles is different enough from the fairies is different enough from everything well, even else just like the servants the the few servants that we see you know the people who blow the trumpets the announcer the troubadour who gets drunk yeah. in the middle of that scomp scene which Ooh. is incredible just which, goals but like, that's the thing goals. Like, but i think you bring up a good point and it's that like visually we are able to see these different it's not casts that's not what they're called but like yeah like these different what there's a specific word in rent and like medieval culture that they're yeah, called but yeah it's the different levels of like the class hierarchy yeah but there's um, a specific word for it i'll think of it later but yeah, yeah we will insert that word when we think about it right here And that's a good word, and we will move on. There we go. <laughs> yeah, no, just fuck. What a way to start a movie. Oh. Hot damn. I like it stuck with. I sang along to the whole thing, and yeah. like I remember. Yeah, and it's just like the images. Like even without watching it recently, like just those images have stuck with me for so long. You know. Yeah. And I don't. I can't really think of another film that we've seen so far where that. I've had like that much of it, it like what I have seen as a kid has had that much of an impact on my memory right I mean obviously something has for me it was Fantasia right um, well I was speaking for myself but <laughs> I know and I'm speaking for myself but the fact that like th- like this for me hits the aesthetic heights that Fantasia does as well like they're I still like Fantasia more, but on like a art, like on the aesthetic level, they're neck and neck. Like this thing is incredible. Well, and I think there's bits of Fantasia in it. Like I feel like right. those like the um, the gifts that the fairies gave. Yeah. And we kind of go into these abstract moments where, like, as like I remember as a kid being like very confused, but also uh-huh. being like, "Ooh, it's pretty," and you can kind of see how it connects. But it was always just very confusing uh-huh. to me. Um, yeah, no. During during the gift sequence, I wrote down these gifts are the most extra thing I love. Parentheses. Terrence Malick could never. <laughs> and then in on another and then like another page and a half later, because that's like I have eight pages of notes from this movie, Alex. Four of them were from the first twenty minutes. <laughs> Um, I oh have Lord. a note. I have a note that just says "Night on Bald Mountain: colon, The Feature Film." <laughs> yeah, because Maleficent's Castle. Maleficent's Castle, but also the burning of the spinning wheels. Mm. Just that pullout yeah. where everyone's watching this big column of fire. Yeah, and I'm just like, man, this movie's good. Diana told us that Sleeping Beauty is not her favorite Disney film, but that there are some aspects about it that she appreciates. She mentioned a few things, but it all kind of draws back to the artistic style of the film. Sleeping Beauty, it's not, it's not, from what I've described before, it's definitely not my type of film, but it's one that I have enjoyed um, and enjoyed more. I, I think those animation styles, like, do get me. They're, like, they're very, like, thoughtful and there's so much work put into it that I think I just enjoy Snow White purely because of that. And I really like the imagery and stuff in Snow White, even though, you know, not not Snow White. Wow. Why did I say Snow White? Sleeping Beauty. That's what I'm talking about. 
I think with Sleeping Beauty, there's a lot of like you think of like I know you, like the song that is in the middle where she's dancing with like the prince and then she's dancing with the animals dressed up as the prince was just a little hilarious scene to me. Also, I feel like there's a lot more di- like notable dialogue in Sleeping Beauty that there's not in Snow White that is also coming to my head. Um, they actually kind of tried when it came to the script of Sleeping Beauty, and I think that's also why I enjoy it. Um, I don't think Snow White, you don't have like a ton of quotes coming from Snow White, but there are definitely some like notable, like you can hear like Maleficent in your head, like... Like, when she turns, like, a certain age, she's going to go to sleep forever, and I'm going to curse everybody. You know, like, you you can think of, like, I can hear her, like, voice. I don't hear her exact words, but I hear her voice. And I love the way they kind of flow through, like, painting and different kind forms of artwork throughout that movie. It's just really gorgeous. And I think that's really what set Disney movies apart to begin with um, was their use of animation and how they use cell animation and how they made things, paintings essentially come alive. And it's gorgeous. Like, I love that. So, Dr. Justin Rollins also gravitated toward the artistic style of the film when he watched it as a kid. Also, there was something about the aesthetic of Sleeping Beauty. It seemed more angular than other things. Like, um, you know, you, you watch something like Snow White, and one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that it seems very rounded, right? Um, very rounded. The colors are uh, seem a bit more muted. And with Sleeping Beauty, the colors are really bold, very striking. The lines are super angular. Um, so there's something that felt very, uh, for lack of a better word, like very modern about it. Um, and I thought that the, I, I like the way that the aesthetic matches the, the, like the tone of someone like Maleficent, like the the lines, the coloration makes sense given her her outsized personality. All right, what it's else we got in those four pages of okay, intro so, notes? All right. Um, uh, bu- 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 we talked about... Uh, so the fact that they went back to like the opening of the storybook motif, which seems to be like their safety default thing that they go back to when they're kind of like... It feels like when they've been on wobbly ground for a bit, they're going to go back to that and use it as like a reset point. I disagree. Uh, right. Okay. Why is that? Because I don't think this is supposed to be a reset point. This is them knowing that with the two fairy tale stories that they've done before, mm-hmm. they got a lot of financial success. So they're trying to draw upon it, not only to create cohesiveness, but also to be like, Look, you liked this before. We're doing it again. Because right. I don't think the Walt Disney Company was at a turbulent point necessarily going one like in the years leading up to Sleeping Beauty. They mm-hmm. were actually at kind of like their financial peak or the right, highest financial fair. point that they've been in and the highest point of success that they've been in. Mm-hmm. It's both Peter Pan and with Lady and the Tramp. So I see what you're saying, though. And I think like, you know, but I do think like I did notice that, too. But I think it was more mm-hmm. so just to be like. Right. You, you know, you like the princesses, so we're right. going to give you the princesses. Right. And like I get that is also another way of kind of thinking about it. Like yeah, like yes it is like a quote-unquote reset, but it is this thing of like we know what you like. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back to that. It's not like we need to restabilize ourselves entirely. Uh later on in their life cycle, the 
talking animal adventures kind of become that reset for them when things get turbulent. Yeah. But for now, it's the princess thing of like, we are going to draw on our legacy. We know what you like. We know what we can hit that'll, um, that will like, uh, pay out. Mm -hmm. But also it feels like a vote, like a confident step forward in a way of like, we are going to invoke, Sleeping Beauty. We're going to invoke Cinderella here because those have done significant. Those have done really well, and everybody really likes those. We are putting this in conversation with these movies that you guys love and and like really hold up as pinnacles of the genre, or of the medium rather, because animation is a medium, not a genre. Uh, the genre of princess films in the medium of animation, I guess. <laughs> you know, correct. Yeah. Yes, that's a better way to that's that is a better wordier way to put it, uh put it. I say wordier as I ramble on because I'm <laughs> a disaster person today. Fine. Sorry. We all are. Um but it 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 is invoking that legacy. Mm -hmm. It's putting this film before it's even started not necessarily on a pedestal, but putting their putting like a good show forward of like, "Hey, we know what we've got on hand. We are putting it in conversation with these we want you to be thinking about these as you're watching it. Mm. So they're inviting the comparisons, which like I know we talked about in the history section, they didn't want to necessarily just hit on that. And it is significantly different from those, but they do end up hitting similar beats and pulling similar val um, sequences type. See, eh. They end up pulling similar sequence types into this movie at points that you would want to go compare it to cinderella or snow white well yeah because i think like off the top of my head the, the there's two things you can kind of you know you can see a progression with apart from just the style of the animation and that's how are we allocating the story time you know like where are we putting in our energies so with like snow white we see like mostly silly symphony a little bit of plot with cinderella we see Less Silly Symphony, but Silly Symphony in service of plot. More so, even though there are still bits where you're like, this drags on a little bit. But then, like, with Sleeping Beauty, their intention was to, right. as we mentioned before, you know, focus more so just on this A plot. So I think that's one way. And I think the second way you can really look at it is, like, the romance between the two leads, i.e. specifically character development with our prince. <laughs> yeah. Because we um, go from, like... Ferdinand the creep got nothing on him to Prince Charming sassy ungrateful little turd to Philip also creepy um less so though mm -hmm. and with personality that yeah. you can easily distinguish so you know we're moving up we're moving yeah. up here Throughout the episode, Harrison, myself, and our guests are going to discuss who is this movie about? Because I noticed during our interviews that different people had different opinions on this. The topic usually came up because someone had something to say about Aurora's role in the film. Some saw her as the protagonist and wished she was in the movie more, but others claimed the protagonist is a different character. I'm bringing in Morgan now because of her thoughts on Prince Philip and the role he plays in the film. I like I think that Sleeping Beauty is my favorite of like the classic Disney movies or like the classic princess movies mm. and I think that more like it's called Sleeping Beauty but I feel like the main character like the main protagonist is really 
Prince Philip. I think that it's more his movie than it is her movie. You know, like he does most of the action. And I think that he's like, I think that you see more of his character than you do like Sleeping Beauty's character. Mm-hmm. You know, like you see him fight for her and, you know, he like tells his parents like, hey, I'm not going to marry who you tell me to marry. I actually fell in love with someone and I don't care that I'm going to be king of this kingdom and that our families have been planning on this since we were born. I'm going to marry who I love. And that just happens to be the person that he was supposed to end up with anyways. But I do think that it's just, I think it's a good film. Um, A lot of people like talk down on it just because, because of the reason that Sleeping Beauty is like barely in it and barely says anything. And, but I, I think that it shows like a good example for like boys even like I think that they like have to have like a prince character to root for and I think that Prince Philip is really the only prince that does anything worthwhile in any of the Disney movies really I mean we're not going to talk about Cinderella 2 and 3 and like 4 where the prince is kind of in those but if you talk about like the classic movies Prince Philip is like the I think that he's like the main character actually quite like philip i think he's fun interesting say more um i think uh, i i do think he is a little bit aggressive in uh the once upon it during once upon a dream like she is clearly backing away from you let her back away don't keep grabbing her hand right that's a little much that's much but like by the time that they're clearly on the same page when they're dancing and like having their like little conversation and she's like i'm not gonna tell you my name i'm dipping out goodbye mm-hmm. and he's like when can i see you again and she's like never and he's like really never and she's like and he's she's like maybe, maybe sometime some... no and he's like conversation tomo- <laughs> that that conversation's so good it's, it's um, so good goodbye. because she well when i see you again oh never 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 well maybe, maybe someday, someday. Tomorrow? tomorrow no tonight this evening <laughs> where at the cottage by the glen. <laughs> it's so good. It's so cute. I I can't help but love it. Like and yes, I know the I know the criticisms of like oh he kisses a girl in in her sleep. I'm like yeah, that's not great. But also, an entire kingdom is on the line here. Like Meriwether, like Flora might have gone a bit too hard. <laughs> A little bit too hard in her desire to avoid emotional confrontation. Oh, tell me. We'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, let me see. Once the Once Upon a Dream sequence has always been my favorite watching this film. Um, it's kind of like been like one of the big reasons why I would go back to the film so much. I just think it's really well done. Um, I agree with like Philip. Keep he keeps grabbing at her, and you're like, mm, maybe we should stop. But then there's also, like you said, there's just something very charming about the whole sequence, and like it is kind of romantic in a way. And I'm like, and I don't know how I feel about that because I'm like, this is also kind of weird because it's a stranger. Also thinking about the fact that like he probably knows he has to marry some random girl that he's never met, and what is he doing the day that he's supposed to be marrying a girl that he's, you know, he's supposed to be marrying this girl? Is he's like hitting on some other random girl? Um, which is a whole thing in and of itself. Which I was kind of like, all right, I don't know what that says about you. Maybe that, but that gave me a weird vibe.
When we talked to Justin about Sleeping Beauty, he mentioned that he also got weird vibes from Prince Philip. Well, there's also, I mean, obviously there's also like the whole kind of like date rapey vibe uh, from uh, Prince Charming. I mean, isn't that all of that era of Disney princes? No, it is. is. Let me kiss the sleeping woman. (laughs) Because only my heteronormative love will revive her. Oh, of course. <laughs> I've seen, I saw her, and it's my pure love yeah. for this woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally pure. Pure. Not questionable in any way. Well, love. You, you see that, and you're like, oh, of course, this is totally why this skirted, this would have skirted right by the censors, right? Because they're like, oh, there's no sex perversion here. There's just a man <laughs> forcing himself on a woman while she's, while she's unconscious. Right? But they're straight, so it's okay. But I think, like, the way they animated it, they didn't get the it lined up correctly. So when they kiss, it, like, jumps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they couldn't, like, <laughs> they couldn't yeah. do it. I don't know. I mean, how do people kiss? <laughs> how do make face match? <laughs> SC also seemed to indicate that he recognized how the prince's actions are a bit creepy, but praised Aurora for the way she handled the situation, saying it's a moment people don't give her enough credit for. You know, this is this segment where we get to, to follow Aurora in the, in, the, in the woods, and we get the, the song um, Once Upon the Dream. And even in her, was it like 16, 17 lines Aurora has, there's this scene, once Prince Philip, who was the first prince with, like, personality, um, like, he, he is so smooth. Um, he slides in there. He he learns the lyrics. You know, he romances her, and he's trying to get really slick. And she's like, "Wait, not until you meet my family." Bye. <laughs> you know, and for Aurora to have the wherewithal to be like, you know, you need to meet my guardians. You know, they need to approve of you before we can get you know super close. Is it's a little thing that a lot of people people I think miss, but. I mean, it's a lot, especially for that time, you know, to where everything was just like, they're the two, they have, you know, opposing genitalia, and they're the, the heroes, so they're going to fall in love. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, the first time that I've seen, like, the uh, the prince and the, um, the princess uh, just kind of speak on, like, these things. And even Philip is really forward in the way like he's like yo i know that our kingdoms might go to war (laughs) but uh i met someone that i like and hey dad you're gonna have to deal with this and then his dad's like oh man i'm gonna have to tell king stefan and go to war because my son likes somebody and he was willing to do it too he was about to go tell him tell him my son's found a gal (laughs) and by thunder we're gonna deal with this (laughs) and thankfully everything worked out (laughs) I think that with Philip, it's interesting how he kind of shows this, like, because I know we talked a lot about monarchy in um, Alice in Wonderland and how monarchy bad uh, and all that. And I think it's interesting how he is kind of like this and he's naturally kind of rejecting monarchy in the one bit because, like, he's going against his duties to marry some random princess and he's telling his father like dad it's the 14th century like wake up a little bit <laughs> like great line great line. line so well it's done so good but like 
you kind of like but the reason why i say he rejects monarchy is like when you look at that scene when he and his father are having like this discussion how is hubert responding to this like what is the way that he wants to handle the situation he's acting very violently you know he he's drunk obviously but still like there's a violent there's kind of like a violence and like a loudness to the whole thing whereas philip the way he's handling it is he's just kind of he's very calm he puts the hat back on hubert's head and he's like i'm just still gonna do this it's fine you know and then like runs away so like he it's interesting because like i was watching that i'm like he naturally can't like does not fit into monarchy because he does not like kind of play into that the violent aspect of it right Mm -hmm. just in the way like in the difference in their temperaments which i thought was interesting um my last thought about philip freaking useless toward the end there i mean yeah fair because okay okay the fairies are like all right, Philip, like, we're just kind of going to, like, go with you, but this is all up to you, bud. You're the one who has to save the day. And, like, they save his ass, like, six times. Like, if they I, were not there, he would have been dead I mean, from yeah, the start. Because he's fighting Maleficent. Yeah. But also, why throw in the line, all right, it's up to you. That's it's all fair. up to you. When really, these three women are pulling the heavy work and doing all the work for him, for the most uh-huh. part. Uh-huh. So it frames him as the hero in this situation when really he's not. Like he is because like, you know, he ends up kissing Aurora and all that and everything gets better. But really the real heroes are the fairies, which is interesting because like they kind of start the issue, but then they end up resolving their own problems. Right. So there's a satisfaction with that. But yeah, basically like at the end I was kind of watching this and I was like, I mean, I guess I should be impressed, but you're just kind of, <laughs> you're just kind of there. Yeah, he is just kind of there, and I'll be like, I'm not watching. I'm not watching that sequence for him. I'm the, I'm here for Maleficent. I'm <laughs> by that point in the movie, I'm full simp mode. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, I more on while we're talking about Philip, um, this movie is in a very odd way. Kind like not even that. It's not even that odd. This movie's very much about the weight of parental expectations mm-hmm. and just the way that kind of fucks with you. Yeah. Because, uh, like, we have that whole discussion between Stefan and Hubert. By the way, just love that we're past just the king and the queen, although we still have the queen. For some reason, I, my brain kept going, her name is Susan. I'm like, no, it's never said anywhere that what her name is. I'm like, it's Stefan and Susan. Go with it. Honestly, I like it. Stefan and Susan. That's yep, cute. I love it. That's really cute. Um, but like their whole conversation like about the, uh, about the betrothal between Philip and Aurora um, is, one, a pretty good takedown of how dumb political marriages are. Because they almost go to war over, like, perceived issues that these character, like, that these children have no input on. Mm-hmm. Like, the relationship is almost thrown entirely out the window because they're getting a little too drunk and uh, careless with their words. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene is also really good at showing the invisibility of the servant class uh, in this time period. Because that dude's just getting hammered. Just completely, like off to the side and they have no idea he's even there right um but like under the weight of these parental expectations both philip and aurora crumble like philip's like nope i'm gonna I'm, goodbye 
I'm out. I'm going to go flirt with this girl I met in the woods. Seems like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aurora just completely shuts down when it, it's when she realizes what is expected of her. And she's just like, I does not know how to handle it right. at all. Right. Which ultimately, I think, opens the door for Maleficent to be able to hypnotize her as fast as she does. Um, this is not me victim blaming. This is me ultimately saying like the expect the parental expectations are what's to blame here. Like just let this poor girl live her life. Mm-hmm. Like just let her be, and like also maybe don't try and like change fate. Like the Greeks talked about this enough in all their shit. The more you try to fight fate, the more likely it is to happen. Well, and I think it's interesting you bring that up too because I think it's also tied back to monarchy and. Because, like, you're saying all this stuff about parental expectations and how, like, arranged marriages are dumb and everything. And, I mean, it's just kind of the topic of the time right now. But, like, it reminds me a lot of the discourse surrounding Harry and Meghan right now as they're leaving, you know, the royal family. Like, they have that whole interview with Oprah that's coming out soon. And, you know, they're just talking about, like, the expectations of being a royal and, you know, how damaging that can be and, like you know, how difficult that is because I think not only is it just parental expectations, but it's also the sense of like duty to not only your family, but your country or your nation. You know, Mm -hmm. there's this, this higher sense of, um, there's more grat, like there's more pressure I feel like in that situation. So I think it can also be just tied back to the critique, a critique of the monarchy in general. And I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting how you bring up like how, they, you know, they get drunk and they get violent, which again kind of goes back to that point I was mentioning with in that scene with Hubert and um, Philip. And I, th- again, like just all drawing back to what you've said earlier about how it is inherently violent and mm-hmm. traumatizing for people as well, um, trauma inducing, I should say. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I didn't, I have to say, like the scump scene in general. Like, I think there's a lot going on there, and I appreciate it more that you now that you've brought out all this stuff, but, like, watching it last night, I was like, I'm bored. <laughs> like, oh, I was not bored for a second of this movie. Really? Like, every, every Every frame of this movie, I'm just locked in. Interesting. I, like, I have not paused any of the movies we've talked about to take notes. Uh-huh. This is the first movie where I've been like, no, I need to stop. I need to write down. I need to stop. I need to write down. It literally took me two hours to get through this, <laughs> like, two hours to get through this movie. I could not help it. I didn't want to miss a second. I yeah. love this movie. Yeah. Um, but like, as you're saying, like with regards to like the right and the duty, uh, like the duty and the responsibility of this, of the monarchy of ruling, like the fairies put that crown on Aurora. I almost said Adora. Um, they put that crown on Aurora and they're like, this is your birth. This is like your right and your duty. And she just starts crying. Right. She does not want this. Her this her life has been ruined. The well, yeah, because she's she, for sixteen years. She thought she just lived with her three gay aunts, and yeah. like life was good. And then, like, imagine to be sixteen years old to think your life is one thing, and then to hear like, oh no, actually, like you're like not only were you super sheltered, and you know maybe if you grew older with Flora Fauna and Meriwether, you'd be able to go and do your own thing. But now you really can't do your own thing. You know, so it's like maybe like because you can tell she's very lonely at the outset of the movie, right? Like that's right. kind of why I think she dreams as much as she does. You know, she meets her love in her dreams because like she doesn't really have anyone else right now. As someone who daydreams 
all the time and did at that age. Like, I totally understand the draw to do that. And I think, like, yeah. there's just so much that goes into that the, that breakdown that just makes you, like, feel for her because you're like, oh, girl, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know a lot of people give her a bad rep, Aurora, a bad rep for crying. I don't. I think it's deserved. <laughs> like, I would cry this, in that situation. Uh, I personally think that people need to stop treating line counts as a valid film criticism. Yeah. Because it is doing nobody any favors. Because Maleficent also doesn't have a ton of lines. Well, yeah, that's what because I was she's thinking, not- too. She's on not camera in the movie a whole all bunch. that much. No, I was actually yeah. surprised by that because I it was in the in the scene with the the two kings when I was watching this, and I was like, I thought she would have been in this a lot more, you know, like thinking like because yeah. I knew going in Aurora wasn't going to be in it all that much, so I was like, oh, they must give her more screen time, but they really don't. No, and but... it's not a bad thing. No, because ultimately, like. Like I said, like I've said, this is a story about like all of the people affected by this. Yes, Sleeping Beauty is the title and Aurora is the titular character. But like everyone kind of has their own agency and part of Aurora's story is how her agency has been taken away by various aspects of the various people in her life. Mm -hmm. And like she's dealing with that like every time we come like as they're taking her back to the castle she's clearly upset as they're walking her back like the fairies are like alert and on guard and looking around but she's just head down solemnly walking just with them right uh and it's just like like having to come to grips with the fact that she has had her agency taken away not just by maleficent but she's like got it taken away from got it her choices in like her uh, choices in marriage taken away from her mm-hmm. although it ends up being what she wanted anyways so it's a bit stickier than that mm-hmm. cuz ultimately she didn't choose to get married to Philip that had been preordained so her her parents and her in-laws end up taking that away from her mm-hmm. Male- maleficent takes her agency away from her by like setting this fate before her and the fairies take away her agency by keeping her in a shack for 16 years yeah, so, so obviously like, she's going to cry when she finds out once again she doesn't, she doesn't have, have control matter. over her life. Like, I get upset when I feel like I don't have control over my life. And I'm 24. Yeah. And I'm like, I consider myself a strong, independent woman on days. They can, <laughs> We can be upset when we feel like life's gotten out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I really, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I just, I think she's a fine character. say the way Harrison and I view Aurora's character in the film is not at all the way most people view her, especially when you look at modern day criticisms. Because Sleeping Beauty is considered a princess film, there's an expectation that she would play a bigger role. You'll hear a lot about the fact that she only has 18 spoken lines in the entire film, none of which are spoken after she wakes up. And this annoys viewers, including Lindsay D. Okay, I don't like Sleeping Beauty kind of for a similar reason to why I don't like Snow White. She, I also have not seen Sleeping Beauty in a while. So from what I remember, she doesn't say much. 
I know she has the least amount of words said out of like all of the Disney princesses. Um, but she's asleep for a good majority of the movie waiting for, I think his name is Philip, Prince Philip to rescue her. And I never liked that. Um, I had since seen the first Maleficent movie and it's made me want to go back and watch, rewatch Sleeping Beauty because I think Maleficent is a great villain, but I never liked how Aurora was never really there. She, it was really a story of saving Aurora in the end and uh, stopping her from pricking her finger and stopping the prophecy from being fulfilled. Some people connect Aurora's lack of screen time to her lack of character, thus making her not all that memorable when compared to other Disney princesses. Olivia was so unimpressed that she forgot which movie Aurora is in. Oh, I thought Beauty and the Beast sucked. <laughs> yeah, that's a very unpopular opinion. <laughs> I rewatched it recently. I think everyone started going on rewatch mode for Disney Plus coming out. Uh-huh. But I rewatched and I was like, why did we sit through this? Like the entire hour and a half. I don't know. I mean, I know it came out in a very different time, but it's just like... Aurora, that's her name, right? She's, like, so dumb. Belle is Beauty and the Beast. Aurora is Sleeping Beauty. Oh, sorry, Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Sleeping Beauty. No, Beauty and the Beast, sorry. That one's a good one. Sleeping Beauty came out in the 50s. Yes, 59. That one sucked. of the stuff in this movie feels like it takes longer than it does Mm -hmm. like aurora's asleep for maybe 20 minutes of the whole movie right it wraps up really quickly yeah i was surprised at how quickly everything resolved like even like when they started the battle sequence at the end like from the time like philip and like leaves the castle to the end when they're dancing in the ballroom i think that's like 20 minutes not even yeah it wraps up fairly quickly but at the same time, like, the pacing doesn't feel rushed. No. Like, this whole movie feels super considered, and it feels like there's a lot here, despite not a whole lot happening. I think a lot of this movie works really well. There are some, I guess, tonal shifts that I noticed where I felt like it was a little, like, I think it worked for the most part, but there were some things that I watched where I was kind of like, okay, now, like, this feels different. Like, there's just, like, so, especially when you open with, like, this pure, like, renaissance, medieval everything going on, you know, with the opening animation, with the music, the way the narrator speaks and narrates, like, the first little bit of the story, I felt like that felt very different from the more, like, like the jokes that you know the the fairies would throw at each other um or even just like the one-liners that just get you it felt like it was kind of waffling between like this very like kind of like a political drama like you were talking about beforehand and then kind of a little more like slapsticky a little bit not i want to call it slapsticky but just like the humor felt a little off placed at times But at the same time, when you think about who the humor is directed towards, like thinking back to the history, it's usually like the more warmer, rounded characters who still fit in this Renaissance angular style that we see, but like are a little intentionally, they they intentionally are not drawn in that way. 
Um, and I think it works really... I do think, though, I will say it works well that it's mostly the three fairies because I think that they are our connection into the tapestry. Right. Right. I think without them, it would feel a lot more distant than it is. Um, but because they kind of are in this in-between where, like, they kind of operate in this in-between bridging us with the the world, the rena- the medieval world, right? Um, right. So I think that helps it, but I do think that at times, tonally, it does... It doesn't match entirely, but that's just my the my experience watching it. Um, and I will say, I think that, like when I was watching it, there were stronger scenes for me than others. Um, and I think just like my personal bias and what I like in a story, that's what was kind of more coming through in those situations. Like I'm more drawn to like specific characters and like character driven stuff not necessarily like overarching like political everything going on like where you see like this holistic picture of how all these different people are like affected which is like i didn't really realize like was happening until you brought it up but i will say like even as a kid like i remember feeling like anxious during certain scenes because i just wanted them to be over so i could get to the next scene which i knew i liked more (laughs) also just the fucking fairies jumped the gun you don't Mm -hmm. deliver her the day of what are you doing you wait until tomorrow I also cannot believe that they brought the wands out, like, the last day. I get it. They were trying to do something nice for her, but I was like, come on, like, guys. Yeah. Also, I mean, you've listen, been doing this shit for 16 years. How are you have still they, this how, hopeless? No, they, I, don't under, I don't understand. Meriwether's secretly carrying the whole squad on her back. <laughs> she really Flora is. And Fauna, Flora and Fauna are useless. Absolutely uh, useless. You know she's Fucking, the one that's cooking every night, oh, made all absolutely. of Aurora's outfits. Like. Yeah, absolutely. Oh like my god! She, she does all the work, and just flora and fauna are like, no, we 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 got you on the emotional spectrum, which like no idea how they handled that either. Getting the girl to sixteen, and having her be relatively emotionally stable, I have no idea how they did that. Absolute, absolute clusterfuck of a house. Like you don't even you don't even know what a fucking tablespoon teaspoon is. You don't know After what a sixteen is. years, sixteen years, it's a little spoon, right? Like if I run out of I, teaspoons, I just get a small spoon, and I'm like, okay, that's good enough, and it does. I the will job. say the only reason I I can when I am excuse me when I am baking and I am looking for measuring cups when I need teaspoons, I will in my head just go tisp tisp tisp. I do that too. And I'm just like, oh my god, this movie is in my brain, and it just or like I I, cups, I had cups, to take cups 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 cups. cups oh, cups, I cups. I felt like I was going to become the Joker when she was like three cups, and they were all just vastly different <laughs> sizes. I'm like, oh my god, how how are you alive? How have you not even how have you gotten Aurora to this point? How have you survived for 16 years without a drop of magic? You should be dead. I understand not knowing what folded in means. I was going to say, eggs folded in Fold gently them. had major fold in the cheese vibes from Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's what that's what came to mind as well. What do you fold folded it? What do you mean? I don't know what that means. But you like, folded it. In. She just put the eggs in there. Yeah. And then looked surprised when she heard the crunch. Yeah, like, what was she doing for the past 16 years? Did she never think to pick up a recipe book? I don't know. 
I don't know. I just like how it's did they insanity? Oh my god! Like yeah, the logic of that just baffling, absolutely baffling. It's insanity. And then how she's like, I'm gonna make the cake 15 layers, ma'am. Excuse me. And then she's like, it'll get stiffer when I bake it. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> you don't you don't stack them all and no. then put it in the oven. You put them in the oven and then stack them. You also don't put the candles on before you bake the cake. I fundamentally don't understand how these women are alive. <laughs> I don't get it. But kind of like, that brings me to like a big topic I wanted to mention. Um specifically with them and just kind of like the representation of femininity in the movie um because yes i was also watching that as i we've been expressing and been like how they're so maternal and yet they're so bad at being domestic like it's embarrassing and the whole time i'm watching it and i'm thinking like are we supposed to be are they supposed to be clowns in this situation because of it? Are we, are they supposed to be the butt of the joke here? You know, like, are they, are we looking at how, when you don't fulfill this, um, strictly female role, how that's a bad thing? Like, is that what we're doing here? And that's what I was kind of worried about at first. But then kind of like I, what I mentioned with Philip at the end and how they basically save his ass six times, you see like that they really do well under pressure. They really do well in these action heavy fight sequences. They're quick thinking. They um, always like, you know, they know what to do in this situation and they're good at it. You know, like they are these like they don't look like it, but they're these like really cool warriors at the end of the day. But what's also interesting, though, is yes, they're able to help him defeat Maleficent. Yes, they're able to help Philip stand his own against this like insanely powerful witch or fairy i guess she is but the way they do it is so again it's not violent in the way that we see with the kings or in the way that we assume medieval battles go so they turn the boulders that are about to smash him into bubbles they turn the arrows into flowers they use a freaking rainbow to get him across like a trench right like they kind of use these more I would say traditionally feminine things, these like softer tactics to evade, but they never like you, but they never use violence to fight back. And that's ultimately why I think they win in the end. They don't even like, they are not the ones who kill Maleficent. They enchant the sword and they say something, something so good will, so evil will die and good will endure or something like that. And then Philip's the one who ends up like, throwing it you know but like everything they do has such like a a positive spin on it but it's not necessarily like a bad thing it's just like a new way to like kind of confront these like very violent battles Mm -hmm. but in a way that doesn't egg it on it's in a way that doesn't make it it worse right it's a way that like causes the least amount of damage and allows the quote the good guys to win in the end so i just thought that was really interesting how they did that and i think it's and i don't think it's a bad thing but it's really interesting i don't i don't know like it's weird this mo- <laughs> like this movie is like weird with the fairies mm-hmm. I get that. yeah because it's like at first you think that they're supposed to be the butt of the joke yeah but then they're hyper competent and it's like well what are what but i what, think it, it yeah i think it just goes to show like 
they're multifaceted at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And we're so, I think especially, like, I feel like I am so used in these films to just be expecting women to be very two-dimensional at mm-hmm. this point, you know? And even the fact that, like, they bicker among one another, but it's not in the way that, like, Wendy, Tinkerbell, and Tiger Lily and the Mermaids bicker in Peter Pan, where it's right. catty and you can tell they don't like each other. They clearly care very deeply about each other. They just bicker like fr- like people who live with each other. Yeah. You know, bigger in the way that they care about each other. And yeah. also they're, like, at least for Flora and Fauna, they're old women, old unmarried women, and they're not, like, <laughs> yeah, terrible, like what we've seen so far. So it's so, it's just so interesting. Yeah, it, it is real bizarre, but, like, it's, it's kind of rad that they're allowed to be so multifaceted and, you know, be bad at things. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. They can be bad at it and they're not the butt of the joke. They're not the butt of the joke for being not fulfilling that feminine role. And it's especially right. interesting when you think about the common critiques that surround Sleeping Beauty. Like everyone always brings up the fact that Aurora only has like I don't know, 16 minutes of screen time and only has X amount of lines in the whole thing and then therefore it's a bad movie for girls to watch, but I think it's a good movie for girls to watch simply to see three female characters who can work well together, have these yeah. realistic relationships, be bad at things, but also be good at things, right? Right. But another note okay. on like the whole like feminism reading um, and how like they're very three-dimensional characters. It was interesting how like they're all crying because they have to get rid of Aurora. I hate saying it that way, but like, you know what I mean? Like they have to take her back. They have to, they have to return her to the store. Yes, essentially. Um, and they're all crying. They have to give her back. They and then Flora's like, oh, look at us. We can't be crying like like a bunch of ninnies. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because like you've mentioned like throughout this episode, like, you know, Flora doesn't like to deal with her emotions, but it's interesting because like we have a her, but it's not like they're all like that, right? It's yeah. like she likes to bottle in her emotions, but Fauna's very like, she is fine just expressing how like, g- like, you know, like you know how soft she can be sometimes and Meriwether is just like sassy at all times so you know it's just interesting like it's there's not one correct way to be in this situation you know you have different characters with different ways of coping with sadness um Mm -hmm. so I like that I thought that was cool it's almost like it's almost like every person is a different person it's amazing Harrison mind blown what What? women are people women can be there can be there can be three women and they don't all have to be the same? What? What? How? 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 I don't know. So and I loved also, that. I loved it yeah. so much. And also, just like, a lot of these characters don't have a lot of screen time. Mm-hmm. Like, it is an ensemble cast. It's titled, like, yes, yeah, she's the titular character. This movie's not a... This movie's, like, about her in so much as it's about the events surrounding her. Mm-hmm. She is who the plot happens to, but if we want to talk about who is, like, in terms of who is driving the action of this movie, and, like, and who is kind of the real protagonist in that way, it's Maleficent. Maleficent is the driving factor of this movie. Every, like, everything happens because she acts, and everyone is just reacting to what she has done. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Like she dictates the pace of what happens and everyone is reacting to her. Mm-hmm. Until the end where the fairies are like, mm, no, we're going to take care of this. And then she's reacting and put on the back foot to their actions. Right. But that still like that still puts women driving this movie. 
women end up being the drivers of the action in this movie. Right. The men, like you said, the men kind of don't do much except yeet a sword correctly at one point and yell at each other drunkenly in an right. argument that, in the end, like doesn't even have Complete a consequence. Meaningless. Right? Completely meaningless. Which I like. I like that scene a whole bunch. I think Hubert and Stefan are really cute together. <laughs> um. I just I don't know. I think it's fun when they're like talk when when he's like look at my kid look at the house I built for their for for our our kids. Like that's that's real cute. It's it it's got a real nice energy to it. But um like it's it's hard for me to think of this movie as first and foremost a romance mm-hmm. because like the romance stuff is there, but it's so layered in dramatic irony. This is not so much a romance, it's a story about politics with romance elements to it. Yeah. Like it's it's it is a political drama that just happens to spend more time showing the romance stuff on screen. But like all of the important beats are done because Maleficent is doing power plays the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of incredible that this movie pulls it off. Well, and I think it's also I think it's cuz I think yes, Maleficent does the starting action but it's a ping pong between Maleficent and her people in the fairies because, mm-hmm. you know, like they do something, but then like they end up, res- you know, it's just like them each responding to each other until one of them wins out in the end. Right. It's not right. so much her driving it the entire time, I'd say, because I think the fairies have enough action in it that drive a lot of the conflict as well. Right. right. Like, you know, and it's and it's interesting because it's not necessarily just them making dumb mistakes. <laughs> it's like elements of their character, right? Like right. Meriwether is characteristically stubborn and impatient, which we saw like in the very beginning of the of the in, of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what ultimately drives her to get the wands because she's frustrated that like nothing's going right, right? But then it's that and then her stubbornness with the dress that causes Maleficent to find out where she is. And then it's just, you know, it's just this constant like back and forth that right. I think. And then, then when you think about it, too, like talking about who is this movie really about? It's interesting because in the scene, in the very op- in the opening scene, when Maleficent comes to the, the ceremony, I thought it was inter- it was weird how well, I thought it was interesting how when she threatens the child for the first time, it's the fairies who go to protect her. The parents aren't anywhere to be seen really in that scene. Right. It's so heavily focused on the three fairies and Maleficent. You know, I forgot that Hubert and Philip were there until the very end after Meriwether cast her spell and they're just kind of there in the corner. I'm like, oh yeah, you guys were at this party too. Like totally forgot about that because they're not the focus and they're not set up in this scene as the focus of the movie. The question of who is this movie about also came up in our interview with SC, and he has a similar take to me and Harrison. You know, like re- redefining what what it meant to be like the lead, because it wasn't Aurora. She's barely in the movie. Um, uh, but it's Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. Like, do you want to talk about girl power? It's three women who don't know anything about this world, but they give everything up that they have to take care of a kid who's not their own for years. And they grow to love her, and they're, they're, they're the heroes of the story. You know, they basically Prince Philip would have died a million times if they weren't giving him power ups and like 
saving him. They basically throw the sword into Maleficent's chest. They are the heroes. Like, oh, well, first they give him the sword and the shield. Yes. And they're like, you'll never miss. Like, you'll be fine. And then they do like extra power bonus they're like all right now this sword's even more powerful and then that's when he comes Maleficent as if it wasn't already like blessed by fairy power like yes exactly like they're so I think I think they are three of the most badass I don't think they get half as much love I almost wept with how they were portrayed in Maleficent basically they were made to be like they were made to be jokes and they were made to be like bitter and hateful and just really ugly people so that Maleficent could be like the hero, and but, that, but to me that was sad. But I was like, they, we already had girl power, we already had three amazing female characters, and now you just you've you've rewritten. Um, but I love all three of them in their own way. The scenes where they're they're, tr- they're trying to figure out how to make a dress and to make a cake, and it's all just so it, it's all so earnest. <laughs> it, yeah, it says Sleeping Beauty because that is the tale. But and I also think it's totally fine that Sleeping Beauty is a character in her story. You know, it's the story revolves around like her fate. But they, the three of them, are the protagonists. They are the ones you follow uh, mostly. While doing some light post-production research, I came across a TikTok relating to this topic. The video had a screen grab of a bar graph titled "Screenplay Dialogue Broken Down by Gender," and surprisingly, Sleeping Beauty, out of all the Disney and Pixar films surveyed had the most female dialogue, even more than Mulan, Frozen, and Angelina Jolie's Maleficent movie. The bar graph is from a study of 2,000 screenplays by Hannah Anderson and Matt Daniels. Their studies found Sleeping Beauty, along with Maleficent, Alice in Wonderland, and Inside Out, are the only four Disney and Pixar films where women have more than 60% of the dialogue. About 70% of the lines in Sleeping Beauty are spoken by women, which makes sense when you think about how much Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether are in the film. I find this study especially interesting given all the anti-feminism criticism that surrounds the film, specifically in relation to Aurora's screen time. Sleeping Beauty is not actually about the titular character, yet so many people think it is. I think this is because of a few things. One, people probably get confused because, you know, Aurora is the title of the movie. But also, I can't help but wonder if some ageism is to play as well. Having a movie about three older, singled, not married women is bold, especially for 1959. So I imagine the marketing surrounding the film, both at the time and during its re-releases, was not focused on them. In fact, just browsing a few trailers on YouTube show that the company is still putting an emphasis on Aurora and Philip, making it seem like they are who the movie is about and that the fairies are the side characters. The reasoning, I imagine, is the notion that a movie about three older fairies would not sell, which I find a shame because, as I've indicated, I quite like these characters. We could talk about Maleficent now because we yeah, haven't can talked we talk about, about her Maleficent? yet. And I feel like this would be a good jumping off point. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Uh, Maleficent fucking rules. I love Maleficent so goddamn much. Like, full full simp mode. I just, we stand across the board. She's the best. She's mean. She's petty. She's all powerful. She doesn't take shit off fools. People put fucking respect on her name to the degree that the queen refers to her as your excellency when she's about to curse her fucking daughter. I'm like, I'm sorry. Absolute power shit right there. It's so 
good Maleficent 2024. Well, everything about her is so well crafted as a villain. And I think it helps that you also have this theme, this musical theme that goes with her everywhere she goes that is haunting and terrifying. Like the first time I heard it, it brought back flashbacks to being a child and just feeling, because that was a big part of, I talked about before how the Once Upon a Dream sequence is one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I returned to this film a lot when I was like three. Like when I tell you I returned to this film a lot, Harrison, I just need you to realize, like I had this thing on VHS I had the Sleeping Beauty outfit that had like a little picture of her on the chest and I wore it so much that that wore off. And then I don't know what happened, but one day I lost, so I I lost the VHS of Sleeping Beauty. I had it. I remember I was under, it was under the couch in the living room. That's where I left it last. And then it was gone. And I don't know what happened to it. It just disappeared. I I low-key wonder if I watched it so many times that my parents just like, hit it from me or something like that but like i it's like the biggest question of my life is whatever happened to that vhs tape you legit sound still you sound upset i like, am you, upset you, it was my so- favorite movie as a kid it was like okay like i know i stand i talked a lot about how much like peter pan meant to me as a kid but this is like this was this was like my absolute favorite movie growing up like yeah more than peter pan and i don't know where that vhs is and i am mad but <laughs> But all that being said, it was the Once Upon a Dream sequence, which, like, as a child, I would, like, act out in my house, and I'd sing the songs, and I'd dance around and twirl around and pretend like the animals were, like, dancing with me and everything. But it was also, I loved feeling so terrified by Maleficent. I felt real fear as a child. And when I heard that musical, I, I felt it in my soul. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm three years old again and I am scared. So I think it's like that combination plus the overall, like she is tall and she like is regal in a way, but in like a dark yeah. and sinister way, the way that they animate her magic, how she uh-huh. just appears and disappears, like her entrance, the like windows it's, fly open. It's so good. The music it's goes. so good. The thunder and then the thunder crashes and she just like appears and then and she's just there and you're like oh my gosh like this is crazy and then in the okay right before she's about to hypnotize aurora and you just see her eyes at the fireplace oh it's so good oh it's so i like okay i forgot that happened and i'm watching the movie and i'm like are those oh my god oh my god oh my god those are eyes those are eyes i was like it's so good i was like okay Speaking I literally have, I have on page two of my notes, it just says, good fairies have perfected the dramatic entrance, three sub points down, never mind, Maleficence is better. Oh my god, it's so, it's so good. It's so good, what a hell of a, also, just her dipping the hell out and, and leaving that party, like, man, they are making full use of that 70 millimeter mm-hmm. like holy hell that shot of the, all the soldiers with their yes. spears and her just in the middle stand back you so fools good <laughs> it is incredible like oh oh it's like the best shot of the movie it's, it's so, so well good and that's like that's saying something because like every 
every three minutes there's a new contender for the best shot of this movie. Well, because that's good. I think the scene um, after they capture Philip and like her henchmen are dancing and she's on her throne with the fire. I thought Again, that shot was Night good. Night on Bald Mountain, the movie. Literally, like that shot was so good. Even the scene when she's like, it's incredible. 16 years and not a trace of her. Are you sure you oh, looked God. everywhere? Like that oh. whole bit was good. Listen, um, anytime Maleficent does anything, when honestly. she turns into the fucking dragon. Oh my God. And, or like, not even that part. Okay, so if the first part is when she is like, she's on the top of the tower and then when she, she like gets yeets herself. Even before that, when she gets to the top of the tower the first time and she's backlit and you can only see her silhouette and her eyes, I'm just like, ah. And then she yeets herself to the castle and she's like that that sparkly, swirly thing. And yeah. then she's like sitting there in the fire and then grows into the dragon. And you're just like, ma'am, ah. who gave you the right? Like, Excuse can I do that? Me. That's so can, cool. Please. Please. I also like just the way this movie manages to bounce between its distinct aesthetic styles that all feel cohesive because uh, we've got like we've got Stefan's castle we've got the forest and the cabin which are like very distinct from like each other and then you've got the forbidden mountains which is like the all of Maleficent's aesthetic is just incredible by the way once again decrepit buildings conveying moral um integrity mm -hmm. because that's a theme that disney will not let go mm -hmm. but then just i my fourth distinct art style is just i could only describe it as cosmic abstractions <laughs> and maleficent everything maleficent does is just like a border is riding the line when she's doing magic is riding the line between like her her physical aesthetic and the cosmic abstractions just the way her magic feel like just kind of breaks everything like when she's yelling at her minions for not finding aurora and like the purple is behind her but it's also behind like the purple flashes are behind everybody else as well mm -hmm. like she is just like so close to breaking this world because she's angry mm -hmm. it's so good she's so much more powerful than anybody in this world realizes and if she wasn't kneecapped by the most incompetent henchman i've ever seen this side of gi joe she would take over the take over the world no problem well and i think that's why because i think they had to like it's the animators or the story writers were like, well, we can't make it too easy on her because <laughs> yeah. she very clearly would just destroy everything. Yeah. We made too good of a villain. Oh no. Like we, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling the lever. I'm sorry. Like even in kingdom hearts, mm. like she's, I know uh, she is like the main villain of the, of that first game. And she pops up in every single one and she's a main antagonist throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they keep having to stick her with bumbling henchmen because everybody knows that she's too strong on her own. Like kingdom hearts two forward. They give her Pete to deal Stop. with Pete. Pete's so pointless. Right. He, like, does he just yells? He's not exactly. a threat. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How you how do you nullify Maleficent as a threat? You give her Pete. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, and like just man, Maleficent rules. So good. It's so good. I, and like I, Oh my gosh, this part, the part where like I love 
that scene i'm gonna say this i'm gonna tie this in with maleficent because it's her power that's doing this but like the way yeah. that they animated her power her hypnotizing aurora up the stairs and that suspense tied oh, with the yeah. music and it's- then just when she's like touch the spindle touch it i say and then like it happens with the music and then the fairies come in and she just laughs and you're like so good and then when she like the bit where she like they tie up philip and she just laughs and she's like oh but oh i caught a prince (laughs) oh god she's so good she's so good i love maleficent so much just the way she like the whole sequence of her leading Aurora up the stairs and she just manifests the spinning mm-hmm. needle. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh man, you lit- there was literally nothing y'all could do to stop her. No. Nothing. That's the thing. No- it, ma- it shows you that like, Stefan is nothing against her because he's his solution to this was we're going to just bin- burn all the spindles. And it's like, you're going to do that against a witch. Like this very, very powerful woman. Uh-huh. Like, you, did you really not think that she could just like create her own? <laughs> like or like transform into one yeah and then like, like did you not did that not occur to you dude she teleported in your into your front front room like i'm yeah. sorry a spinning wheel is nothing mm-hmm. and just the way the music is slowly layering over that sequence as she's climbing the stairs mm-hmm. and like just yo that it's flute so or clarinet or whatever it is is yeah it's so discordant it's the it's the best it's the best it's the cl- it is the cl- <laughs> yeah it is the, cl- <laughs> it is the closest they've ever come to evoking like the rite of spring uh mm-hmm. from fantasia mm-hmm. in their own musical design sensibilities because they needed it to be that unsettling right it's so good with the green light and then she just looks off and she moves so slowly too uh-huh. it's like unnatural how slowly she moves yeah um and plus you're like in this gothic medieval tower mm-hmm. and it just Everything about Sleeping Beauty, I still remember the first time that I ever watched Sleeping Beauty. I was, I was young. My mom brought it home. I wasn't supposed to watch it until like with the family with the next day, but I snuck out of bed and I went to the living room and watched it by myself. I'd never seen it before we got that, that VHS. And the scene where Maleficent hypnotizes Aurora and takes her through, takes her through the wall and... Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather are like flying, and their voices are echoing, and just the um, uh, Tchaikovsky playing in the background. It's so perfect and so haunting, so beautiful um, that uh, like it's like <laughs> I was awestruck. It's also. It, it, it's also wild just how much Maleficent's color scheme has like embedded itself in my brain. Like that distinct combination of purple, green, and black. Like it just like that, like just has in like influenced like my own creative decisions in terms of like Dungeons and Dragons casters. Like mm-hmm. all of my all of all of the casters I play end up like. Like I'm, the one I'm specifically thinking of, I'm playing a 
warlock right now which ended up like was specifically based on something else but also subconsciously has been completely influenced in terms of aesthetic by maleficent like like the character is a fucking dragon person dressed all in black who breathes acid breath acid fire breath and it's that color of green like i just i oops oops maleficent all the way down oops oh it's just so good god but then like at the end when philip just like throws like i don't know like he kills her and it's a great like climactic ending but at the same time you're like okay that's like she's gone now like that's all it that's it okay no no. Okay, whatever. Like no, you don't. I don't buy it, but I don't buy it at all. Again, that's also probably Kingdom Hearts fucking with my head because like you literally murder Dragon Maleficent at the end of that first game, and then she shows back up at the end at the beginning of the second one, mm-hmm. and at the end of one, you're literally just left with like the cloak on the ground in the same way that you're left with a cloak on the ground in this. So I'm just like, mm-hmm, yeah, no. She's she's just fucked off. She conceded defeat this time, and she'll be back. You can't win. At some point. You never know. You can't beat Maleficent. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, I, I... This is probably going to be the only time I mention these, but, like, I understand... Now, I, I, I understand the desire to want a Maleficent movie. Mm. I understand the desire, but also the fact that Maleficent is just here and we don't get any backstory to her. We don't need... I don't need to know what her deal is. No. Not, like, that... Like, that sense of mystery like adds to the effect well yeah and it's like and it's because like i think in recent years like we all want like you know because people find villains hot we want like you know there's a there's a desire to understand the villains there's a desire to see like that more i guess i don't want to call it a human side but that more like vulnerable side i would say and i think even just like in media we see like the more sympathetic villain more often like even outside of disney like think of characters like prince zuko or you know those kind of those kinds of characters right so i just think that's more of like a cultural shift that we're going towards or that we have been going towards in the past years um but i think like you need to know like when you don't need that like you don't always need that i guess is the point i'm trying to make like she works so well just as she is in this movie you know i don't just like you said like it does not really matter why she is the way she is to me i'm just like okay that's fine (laughs) yeah whatever like good for you (laughs) yeah that's fine you can just keep being mean right i'm good with this I mean, I also think it, like, think of, like, I don't know, people are also, like, there's, like, that whole craze with the, like, making a murderer. Like, you know, the, 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 yeah. the psychology behind we, murderers we and those kinds. We understand them. Right. Which I think, like, to an extent, yes, I think it's fascinating to know how that all works. But at the same time, like, it's, when it comes to movies and shows like this, you do, it's not always needed. And yeah. it can, and you can, and that's the thing, like, I think, remember in Fantasia when you brought up, like, you like the night on Bald Mountain because it's just dark in a fun way and we don't see that a lot. Like, I feel yeah. like Maleficent's the same way. Oh, absolutely. It's dark and it's scary, but it's fun at the same time. It's why, like, as a kid who was scared of, a, like, I was scared of Barney when I was very young. But Maleficent. No, same. You know, <laughs> but, like, Maleficent, like, she scared me, but I liked it. It was different, right? 
because it was enjoyable to watch. Yeah, and like, no way. I don't need to know why Maleficent's castle is destroyed. I don't need to know why she is taking up residence in these mountains. I don't need to know who her army is or like why they're hog people. I don't need these answers. It's fun and evocative as is. Mm -hmm. Like, just let things be weird. Let things be mysterious. Yes. This is me me calling on the pop culture landscape of 2021. Stop giving me all the answers all the damn time. Let the hex be grief. It's fine. I don't need an answer. Right? Let Agatha Harkness just, like, have all this power. I didn't... I don't... I don't want to know why, like, as she much probably as has wa- mommy issues. I get as it. As much as... As much as I want Mephisto to show up, it doesn't need to be Mephisto. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, is gonna date this episode. I know. This shit. It comes out on Tuesday. about that. Oh, my god! It, it comes out in, like, six days. It's fine. Yeah, the episode will be out in six days. The episode comes out in, like, what, five hours? Yeah, WandaVision's up at, like fucking 3 a.m. tomorrow like god that. damn it <laughs> but anyways um did you like what else did, did you want to talk about um while we're still talking about maleficent i love her plan for philip so much it's so it's good so like mean I, it's so fucking funny watching that as a kid definitely like this is gonna sound awful but like whenever if i ever if i ever was upset with someone as a as like a teenager or whatever or like if i ever wanted to make someone upset or if i was talk if so i was talking to someone and they were like upset with someone and they'd be like i'm just gonna do this i'd be like no this is what you should really do to make them feel it you know like that's how my brain works and i think it's because i watched that scene and she's like i'm gonna make you grow old and then like you'll go and you'll kiss aurora and you can finally be together but you're gonna be basically dead like oh it's so good and i'm gonna make you sit here and wait just knowing that you could be with her but you can't and it's like yes (sighs) just the, the sadness go and then there's the added bonus of the fact that she doesn't know Flora and Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether have put the entire kingdom to sleep. So if she was able to pull that off, she would cripple an entire kingdom's economic system overnight. <laughs> it's so good. I love that Flora's straight up like, I can't deal with my emotions. I'm going to cripple a government. And like, Maleficent's plan is great on its own, but the fact that she monologues to Philip in verse about it just oh, I didn't even pick up on that no she's absolutely in doing it in verse like everything rhymes there's a cadence to everything i'm not sure what like meter it's in but um it it's anytime it's like the, it's like uh the ugh, fucking it's like the horse in uh wind in the willows mm-hmm, giving mm-hmm. his testimony in verse just anytime they bust out into verse is the greatest shit it's so theatrical it's so dramatic and of course like i like to think it's diegetic and like i know she's probably like trying to cast a spell but also maleficent's just a theatrical petty bitch she'll just do it she's just stunting on him she's just bragging now oh 100 she because she, she knows did. like in that situation she knows she won yeah. And she's like, I'm going to rub it in your face. And it's like, yeah, good job. Proud of you. Having not seen this movie in a while before watching it recently for this episode, I was a bit surprised when our guests brought up Maleficent so much. Morgan brought up a reason as to why that may be. And then, of course, you have Maleficent, who 
I think that when most people think of Sleeping Beauty now, especially with the newer movies that have come out, they just think Maleficent. Even, like, at Disneyland, like, uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle is the castle at Disneyland. But, like, when you go throughout, like, they have, like, a walkthrough of the castle. It's mainly Maleficent's castle. I mean, like, you see, like, her in most of the shots anyways. Mm -hmm. She's really the star. She's why everyone comes to see it. (laughs) Right. And she's, like, interesting. I think that she's just kind of, like, a sassy bitch who's here for drama. And I'm here for it. Love it. She just, like, shows up uninvited, and she's like, you didn't invite me? Oh, guess we'll have to curse your baby. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I really like villains, too, mm-hmm. obviously. Lindsay D. also explicitly mentioned Angelina Jolie's Maleficent movies as the reason why she likes the character so much. I think most of my appreciation for, Malif- Malif- for Maleficent comes from the recent movie with uh, Angelina Jolie. So I, I think that Angelina Jolie just did a great job of portraying this real, like, three-dimensional character rather than just this villain who decided she wanted to place a curse on a baby because she wasn't invited to a party. <laughs> um, so I, I think the recent Maleficent movie gave me more of an appreciation. And I think if I hadn't seen that, I still would not like Sleeping Beauty at all. But other guests, like Morgan, mentioned that they liked Maleficent as she was in the film for all her evilness and pettiness. Uh, I freaking love Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) Um, uh, The least of which is not Maleficent, who is not in the movie that much, but she is just the most deliciously delightful uh, villain. Just the sequence where she tells Prince Philip, look, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to keep your horse alive. I just need you to get old so you can go back and kiss her and she'll see you and she'll be so bothered by how old you are. You'll never get married. 100%. She says, I'll sleep soundly for the first time in 16 years. She's been like, she's had bad sleep for all this time just because she, because she was so worried <laughs> that these two were going to fall in love and that her, like her, you know, her curse wouldn't work. And like, she is dedicated. Um, and it's all because she didn't get invited to a birthday party. She, it's the, it's fucking she's so petty. Yeah, no, she's the, I think, um, the majority of great Disney villains have just taken from her formula and just kind of expanded up on just the drama um, and, you know, the fashion. You get Scar. My favorite Disney song is Be Prepared. Um, and, like, Scar and Ursula, Ursula, who's definitely the best part of The Little Mermaid, um, I think very much uh, takes a dramatic flair, you know, for, and both Ursula and Scar, I think, take after Maleficent. Maleficent could claim her them on her taxes, like they... <laughs> Um, <laughs> she, she, she made them possible. Um, so it's very much necessary to respect the OG of villainy. She says, and all the powers of hell. And that, <laughs> that was really intense for me as a child. <laughs> and it's a line that stuck with Justin as well. I think Maleficent is such an awesome character. Um, that was the first time I can recall seeing having someone, well, swear what I thought was swearing at the time. Cause when she transforms at the end, the dragon, she says something to the effect of like, 
uh, like prepare to face like the forces of hell or something. And I was like, whoa, that is so badass. Like it's a cartoon and she's like this super self-possessed, confident woman in a world of like basically like morons and, um, and, and, uh, um, uh, uh, stalkers. Right. Um, and like, but it was also confusing because I was like, why is she the bad guy? <laughs> I think we have our title for the Sleeping Beauty episode. Yeah. A, a world of morons and stalkers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know what? I, I have not, I still have not seen either of the Angelina Jolie Maleficent movies. I wonder if that would color my, my feelings about um, the original Sleeping Beauty. But I don't know. I just, it, it made, it made a big impact on me as a kid just watching like, um, you know, there, I didn't feel like there were a lot of, of representations of really like strong, confident women, um, who knew like their place in the world, um, and weren't, and their identities weren't tied to men. So it was really interesting to see in a cartoon of all places where I wasn't expecting it to see a character like, um, Maleficent, um, who everyone else around me was like, oh, well, she's obviously the bad guy. And I honestly was like, I don't, I don't understand why it seems like everyone else is 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 kind of the problem um maybe that says uh a lot about me clean up all my notes because we've been going for a bit but i've got some i've got some cool thoughts the pink and blue splashed dress when they are done fighting over it looks rad as hell and they should just leave it the way it is (laughs) i love that design uh the fairies look legitimately shocked when Aurora's like, I met a boy. And they're like, boy, him? What do you mean a him? <laughs> Not in our Savic coven. What are you talking right? about? Like, they legitimately seemed befuddled that Aurora ended up being straight. It was well, so funny. I guess for me, I know, when I, I saw know that, it was more of like a... I, I got the same vibe as I did when Mrs. Darling was talking to Wendy and Wendy was like, oh yeah, when that man comes to my window, I have to leave it open. And she's like, excuse me? That's kind of yeah. like the vibe I got because yeah, like if I literally lived in the middle of nowhere and basically people wanted me dead and yeah. I went home and told my gay aunts that <laughs> I met a boy in the woods and I love him, I'd also be very, as a no, parent, yes. I would be very concerned. Yes, that is the correct read on the situation. However, I choose to reject that read in favor of my own because I like mine better. Okay. Also, both can be true. Um, but also, just, they're they're discussing it and they legitimately at one point go, she's in love. This is terrible. <laughs> Which is love. when they ha- <laughs> Which is when they have to break the news of like, no, you're already engaged. You're 16 have been and have been engaged since birth. I think this is worth bringing up because every other part of this movie is so masterfully done. The audio quality is a bit rough. I was thinking about that too. It was um, the the audio quality of Maleficent especially to the different yeah. characters. Susan didn't have great audio quality <laughs> at all. It's kind of like they were all in different areas. I wonder, yeah. like, so it made me wonder, like, because I know with um, some characters in Alice in Wonderland, they just kind of took the 
the audio from the, the live, live action referencing and i f- yeah. wonder if that's what they did with Od- um eleanor oddly because it's it felt very hollow and echoey right. which could have just been the effect they were going for but like no one else had that it was inconsistent right. Well, there's one other dude that has that, and it's the dude vo- when when she's talking about like, did you search everywhere for Aurora? And it's that henchman who's like being oh, like, yeah, yeah, we search. That dude sounded like a mile and a half away from his microphone. It was bad. Um, but I didn't. I noticed Maleficent's audio quality a little bit, but that was when she w- showed up to to complain about not being invited to the party. Right. But like. That's a big great hall, which is going to be echoey. And I was just kind of like, oh, she's actually inhabiting this space more than the rest of them, which is weird. But I just kind of went with it. Mm. It did, Like Maleficent's audio quality never really stuck out to me too badly. It's just everyone else was like, Ugh. this is what we're doing. Okay. Yeah, no, that bothered me because I was like, OK, I get that it's in a hall. But then why is no one else like even the announcer? His was yeah. like that. You know, yeah. like that. It just, yeah. But I noticed, yeah, that was interesting. It was a choice. Yep. I yeah, thought it, it was, was funny how they made the fountain sleep, saving that water. Good for them. <laughs> Good for them. I don't know how long it's gonna be. Anytime they do a wide shot, oh, they're just cool. take taking advantage of seventy millimeter. It's so pretty. It's so good. Like this movie. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just this movie uses the widescreen format so much better than Lady and the Tramp. Lady and the Tramp totally felt like a retrofit to that stuff, whereas this is like this was designed with the widescreen in mind. Well, that's because Walt said we were doing it after they animated the film. Yeah. So they had to. They had to like. I know. We talked about that last week. Right. I would like to p- bring up some sassy quotes that I wrote down yes, from the movie. do it. Um, we live for the sass here on Dream a Little Deeper. So I guess they were talking about what they would do to like, like I think Meriwether said that she wanted to like hurt Maleficent in some way. And Fauna goes, that's not very nice, dear. And Meriwether goes, well, that would make me happy or something well, like yeah. that. No, that's not, that's not even what it is. It's, what was it? Um, it's 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 um it is Meriwether being like I want to turn her into a toad. Can oh, that I turn was her it. into a toad, and Fawn is like, our magic doesn't work that way. We only mean we oh, it makes people we can happy. Only provide, we can only provide joy and happiness, and she's like, well, it would make me happy. Yeah, that and was I, it. I I was like, my notes for that are, well, who who decides what that means? Who is getting happiness? Meriwether would be happy turning Maleficent into a toad, so why can't she? It would make a lot of other people happy as well. So from the utilitarian perspective, it would be bringing joy and happiness to turn Maleficent into a toad. Like, who here is the arbiter of what joy and happiness is? Well, first, describe utilitarian method, because that's a big word that I... You know, that's just like a theoretical concept I don't think most people know about. Yeah, whether or not you know the term, you're probably familiar with the concept. Utilitarianism is the ethical code that dictates uh, actions that bring the most good to the most amount of people are the correct ones. Um, which is useful in places, is not useful in others, because at a certain point, mo- uh, most actions you take are going to make some people very happy and some people very upset. So it's not a governing principle that you need to stick to, but it's, you know useful in some cases 
as thought experiments allow, which is why I bring it up here. Because, like, yeah, a lot of people would be really... The happiness brought about in the kingdom by turning Maleficent into a toad probably outweighs the negative feelings Maleficent has about being turned into a toad. No, I think that's a good point. I think, though, it's more so a morality and an intention sort of situation. Like, you can't... That's why they end up defeating Maleficent the way they do at the end. It can't be through that specific way. But then, like, on the topic of happiness, I love how Fauna goes, you know, sometimes I don't think she's very happy. In reference to (laughs) Maleficent, I was like, oh, go off. The shade. Oh, it's so good. Just, Um, they, they throw so much attitude around this movie. And then we've got, when they're making the dress, Meriwether... It looks awful, Flora. That's because it's on you, dear. (laughs) (laughs) And then Fauna comes over. Well, that doesn't look how it looked in the book. Exactly. (laughs) Again, it's like, yeah, they're being like sassy to one another, but it's not because they're being catty. It's just like. They uh, jab at each other the way you and I jab at each other. Exactly. Like, it's what you do when you're friends. Yeah. Also, just fucking. She throws the fabric over Meriwether and cuts the hole in it. Meriwether's like, the hell is this? And Flora just goes, like, ah, it's where the feet go. Yeah, there's got to have a hole in the bottom. I'm like, oh, my God. Dear Lord. Like, I'm not, I'm not secretly good at sewing or anything. But, like, I even I know if you roll a fit, if you wrap someone in a thing, there's two holes at the end. Like, what are we doing? I don't understand. Now that we're finishing up the 1950s, Harrison and I are going to give you a little update on our rankings of, you know, our least to favorite films. I'm going to go first this time. So rounding out the bottom at number 16, are we surprised it's fun and fancy free? Not surprised at all since you threw jabs in last week. (laughs) All right. Coming in at number 15, we've got Make My Music. Uh, Number 14, Saludos Amigos. Number 13, Three Caballeros. Number 12, Melody Time. Number 11, Bambi. Number 10, Snow White. Number 9, this is where we're putting Lady and the Tramp. Okay. Number 8 is Fantasia. Number 7 is The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Number 6 is Dumbo. Number 5, Pinocchio. Number 4, we've got Cinderella. And then rounding off the top three. Damn. Number three, we've got Alice in Wonderland. At number two, and this is really difficult, but I had to think of like, and I still don't know if this is going to stay the same. I might end up like switching all these up. But number two, we've got Peter Pan. Man. And Sleeping Beauty, I've got at number one. Man. The only reason why Peter Pan is not number one is because of the abhorrent racism I just, like, I could not in good conscience put that at the top of my list. I mean, that's entirely valid. Um, all right. What about you? So, <laughs> I'm going to make people pissed. I'm going to make people so mad. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, number 16 is Fun and Fancy Free. Tr- shocker of all shockers. Gasp. Uh, number 15 is Saludos Amigos. Number 14 is Make Mine Music. So, our bottom three are the same, just in a different order. Right. Number 13 is Melody Time. Okay. And this is where we're going to start getting people yelling at me because number 12 is Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> I mean, given how enthusiastic you were last episode, 
I'm not surprised. I mean, fair, but then 11 is three caballeros. Keep that in mind. Three caballeros. Yeah. Okay, but here's the thing. I think that makes sense, though, because you still, ha- you, like, you, there's still, like, a, one, like, I think there's still, like, yeah. the childhood attachment there, and two, like, you like the artistically, like, you like weird. to dig in stuff. to the arts, the art style yeah. of it, right? And I think Lady and the Tramp just doesn't hold up comparatively. So I think that makes sense. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the number 10, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Okay. Uh, number nine, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Peter Pan would be way higher if it weren't for the racism, but the racism is so bad that I cannot ignore a third of that movie and put it in my top five. Fair. I cannot do it. That's totally fair. Um, number eight is Cinderella. Okay. Um, real pretty movie, but like the rubber doesn't quite meet the road for me on that one. Mm-hmm. Number seven is The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Number six is Dumbo. Number five is Bambi. Number four is Pinocchio. Number three is Alice in Wonderland, because of course it is. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Number two is Sleeping Beauty. And, of course, Fantasia is still at the top of the pile. Like, I will say, Sleeping Beauty is the closest anything has come to knocking it off of that platform yet. Yeah, like it's it's real close in points. It's very very close at points. But did you think there would you would find a movie that would get that close? Yes, you did. Okay, I have I have a movie in mind specifically. We'll see if it holds up when we get to it. That makes sense. Um, and with that, a quick note moving forward. Um, you know we've been fairly consistent about putting out episodes almost every week, despite you know losing all of our work back in November. But Harrison and I we're gonna take about a month or so off, uh, just so that we can prepare. Uh, I personally am very behind on research, and <laughs> could really use the time to get more sources, just so that I can make sure I'm bringing interesting information and maybe like not as talked about information to the podcast which i feel like with the 50s i didn't really get the chance to do we are also uh reopening our messages for this month so if you want to be on the show dm us on twitter uh, and we'll see if we can schedule something and get your opinions on the show please nothing before sleeping beauty because it's not going to make the cut for obvious reasons and we're looking for like things you love things you absolutely hate things that you think are you know more damage than they're worth you know we just want to get as many different voices on here as possible because as Mm -hmm. we mentioned in the first episode harrison and i are two white people living in the united states we do not encompass every single voice out there and not even close we've been trying definitely um to include that in our podcast uh but we know we could do a lot more and yeah so if you have something you want to say reach out we want to hear from you if you know someone who has something to say please send them our way or send us their way whichever is easier for you we love we are welcome any and all newcomers 100 percent. and we both also this isn't our full-time job we both work any help we would greatly appreciate because this is just a side passion that we're doing so if if you have any books about Disney that are not Disney War, yes. please send them our way. We need those. So yeah, we both, like, we, yeah. reach out to Just. us on Twitter. We're very active on both our personal pages and on the podcast page, and we'd love to hear from you. And until then, dream on, silly dreamers. <laughs> <laughs>